You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. This is Doug and Greg Stokes with Lanyap Podcast. We've got another recording this week. Markets are really you know, up and down related to a lot of things going on in the world, whether it's Russia and Ukraine or interest rate hikes or inflation prints. And we got another one this week with an eight and a half percent year over year inflation number. There's some positives in there, one of which was that some of these things related to like used cars and lumber and other metrics that were pushing inflation up earlier in the year are starting to show some topping effects. But obviously the others related to price of food and energy are blowing up through the roof. A lot of that's from the impact of the Russian-Ukrainian crisis that we've been talking about in previous weeks. But a lot of this has really led wealth managers, investment advisors, asset allocators, and, and just general market practitioners to figure out where is everything going from here. So we're taking a look today at really what's the expectations in the market short term. And then and when we look at long-term capital market assumptions, it's really how we think about portfolios. What are the major institutions thinking about the markets over the next five and 10 years? So I'm going to start with one thing that I think is always a really great indicator that we look at on a routine basis is uh, CNN's fear and greed index. A week ago, there was what's called fear on this. So it, all, it goes from extreme fear to extreme greed. And then halfway in between, it's called neutral. If you go on the little bit on the left, it's fear. A little bit on the right, it's greed. We're at fear right now. We were at extreme fear a month ago. And generally, this has been a pretty good contrarian indicator. And maybe, Greg, just tell us why that's the case. Well, typically, if you look at, like, for example, VIX measures the volatility in the stock market, and it's a daily quoted update on the volatility of the stock market. But historically, when the VIX or volatility is high, prospectively returns are also high. So the Hartford Fund Group put out a study that basically looked at the when the VIX exceeds 40, which is like when the markets are really sort of going up and down quite a bit, and there's a lot of anxiety, the average prospective returns are very high. Um, on average, over the course of five years, returns are extraordinary. And so it's counterintuitive to buy when there's fear and panic, but that really is the best time to buy if you look at history. Obviously, nobody knows what's going to happen. And I really find the whole the dynamic that exists presently in the United States to be super interesting in the context of the inflation rate right now is at 8.5% year over year. And like you mentioned, it looks like it's topping in certain areas like used cars. But if you look at the Charlie Bolello, we've talked about this in the past, but Charlie Bolello posted on Twitter where the United States fits in relative to the rest of the world from an inflation standpoint. And right now, the US is at 8.5%. And we're in the ballpark of Mexico, Poland, Brazil, Russia, et cetera. Actually, we have a higher inflation rate than Mexico. And so the thought and hope is, is that that normalizes over time and we get closer to the, the sort of top of that spectrum near Japan, Saudi Arabia, et cetera. But right now, because of energy prices, et cetera, and supply disruptions, we're at that 8.5% clip. But I would think that's going to probably normalize if we look at this in 12 or 24 months. I'll tell you this. 
So there is fear in the market. There was at some point in the past few weeks, you know, what CNN measures as extreme fear, and they use a few different measures of this. But there was a study done by a group called Verdad Capital. This is maybe two years ago. This was pre-COVID, and they did a study called Crisis Investing. And the premise of the study is what is the real indicator of stress in the markets in which there would be a triggering event to then have a basically a signal to tell investors, okay, now is the time to buy. This is the major contrarian indicator and you know, put all of your money in this particular area of the market. And they had listed as small cap value type companies as the area of the market to target during this period of stress. But the indicator was this, it was what's called high yield spreads. And that's the spread of basically junk bonds or below investment grade bonds to treasuries and the spread between that. So let's say a treasury right now is paying 2%. The high yield spread currently, and I'm looking at this on the St. Louis Fred's economic data, is about 3.73% high yield bonds minus treasuries. What they determine is that when that spread hits 6% or 600 basis points, that that is the opportune time to enter the market from a signaling perspective because that's at peak fear and peak volatility. And so the whole idea with this in terms of contrarian indicators is because when you have extreme fear in the markets, as Baron Rothschild said, when there's blood in the streets, you buy. We're trying to find those basic indicators that say, okay, people are generally freaking out. And when they're freaking out, if you have liquidity and the ability to sell maybe some more stable positions to buy some instable positions, you can end up in a pretty good spot. The guys at Verdad think that the best indicator of that is high yield spreads. And we're not anywhere near, uh, there's definitely fear, but we're not anywhere near what they would be calling a signaling event to go long. So anyway, I'll throw that in there. We'll put that research in the show notes. Generally speaking, being a human being is not something that helps you in terms of emotions from an investment standpoint. So typically when you're, if you look back at history, if if, if the, the crowd is doing something, either buying or selling at a high clip, it's usually a contrarian indicator one way or another. Yes. Yeah, so speaking of selling, I mean, in terms of this is a chart that Bank of America put out this week. April 2022, optimism or pessimism of managers. Global fund manager survey is the most pessimistic situations of fund managers, so professional investors. April 2022 is one of the lowest on record as managers look out into the future. The previous lows, March of 2020, January of 2019, July of 2008, so if you take that as signal, as you know, peak pessimism about the future, whether it's economic or market future from professional money managers, even the professionals get this wrong. As we look at March of 2020 was the, one of the great buying opportunities. Same January 19, the market was up 30% plus in 2019. And we know what happened after 2008. So. Right. Right. Just because somebody's a professional doesn't mean they're a good investor. In fact, if there's actually studies that look at professional investment managers versus benchmarks, and if you look at a long period of time, it's statistically very difficult to beat a benchmark. Like 90% over 15, 20-year periods fail to beat their benchmark. So just because professional investors or billionaires or whoever 
are very bullish or bearish doesn't mean you should do what they're doing. You know, I can tell you who's been bullish all the time really is Ken Fisher. And he wrote a piece recently that we found on Real Clear Markets. What he basically surmises in the piece that markets hate rising uncertainty. So the period of time, like for example, in like the onset of the Russia invasion, there was definitely rising uncertainty. Markets hated that. But equally so, markets love falling uncertainty. And it's his opinion that we're in a falling uncertainty phase. And he points to the midterm elections that are coming in about seven months. Where this is April. That come, that's going to come around November timeframe. And typically what he says in the piece is that the fourth quarter of midterm elections has been positive 88% of the time in the S&P. And it's because basically during midterm years, that typically leads to gridlock. And when there's gridlock in Washington, there is a falling uncertainty because there's not going to be any major legislative changes or anything like that. So he's bullish and he points back at his career in terms of maintaining that sort of attitude. And it certainly worked out well for him. They manage over $100 billion. But it's really interesting to see the sort of mood swings. And then if you look at his history, how things have transpired, but typically that the indicators of negative sentiment are typically a good buying opportunity and vice versa for positive sentiment. I'll tell you one thing that does worry me related to this particular environment that we're in right now is just the, it, it seems just like a very similar period to what we were experiencing in the late 1970s, early 1980s, in which inflation was getting out of hand. Now, I'll tell you one major difference is that the American consumer is currently in fantastic shape, but let's just assume that there's a similar playbook that comes into place in which the Federal Reserve, in order to combat inflation, they raise rates to the point where the economy goes into a recession. And generally, recessionary environments are also you know, volatile market environments. So I think that the big risk here, there's a range of potential outcomes. And that's that's one of the big risks is just you know, sort of that all-weather approach to portfolio management and what does well in different environments. But the other risk is that the Federal Reserve is just so hawkish as it relates to the inflation numbers that we're seeing, that there's a, a forcible push into a recessionary environment. And that's something that we have to take into account as people that manage money. I think you're right. And I think that they're cognizant of that, though, as well, too. And they're looking at the same statistics that we are in terms of like the topping effects that at least exist or at least are apparent in like the latest CPI reports. But like you mentioned, it looks like at least used cars were one of the best performing asset classes over the last couple of years. It's crazy. I'm sure a lot of people see that in their day-to-day life that people would buy a car and drive it for a couple of years and trade it in for something that's higher value than what they originally purchased it for. And I think that was a symptom of obviously demand, but supply constraints. And at least now it seems like the supply piece of that is starting to come back a little bit. As far as the demand is concerned, I think that's what the Fed is concerned about. But you're right. If they overstep and raise rates and really shut down the desire for people to spend to try to get inflation under control, they could it could have a, a sort of negative consequence. And you know, they would be able to com- combat inflation, but they'd also trigger a recession unnecessarily. It'll be interesting to see how they sort of walk that tightrope. In terms of just valuation, a lot of the concern that we were having last year before we even launched this podcast but this is probably before 2021, 
was just generally where market valuations were. At the end of 2020, price to earnings multiples of just the S&P 500, for example, were in the 24, 25 times range. Now, earnings growth last year outpaced the growth in the general market. So actually, at the end of 2021, despite a great year in markets, the price to earnings ratio was lower in going into 2022 than, than it was going into 2021. And now the markets are off, what, 8 or 9%. S&P is off that amount. PE multiples are at like 18 times earnings. Historically, like the average multiple is at 17 times. So it's not really a valuation-driven sentiment change in terms of just general markets. I think the just rising interest rates, rising inflation is really the concern here. While a year ago, it was more about well, can markets or companies really grow into the valuations that they're receiving? We saw a lot of them didn't, which was, which we saw some of these tech companies and software companies sell off by 50% or greater. But it's a shift now in is the Federal Reserve and just the economy in general going to be able to land uh, softly on its feet after a, an interest rate and inflationary spike? I am just generally an optimist in these types of scenarios, and I think that it's going to work itself out, but there's definitely that risk that there's policy error, and that's something to focus on. I 100% agree. I think that's what the market's kind of... If we look back at the last six months, there was volatility around legislation that wasn't related to increases in taxes, et cetera, that wasn't able to get through, and uh, then subsequently inflation concerns, then the Russia war. The market definitely seems to be have not moved past a lot of those sort of concerns, but seems to be zeroing in on this this sort of known risk associated with increase in rates and the potential ramifications associated with that. If we look at if we look at this from the the long term, though, and we've talked about this before, recessions happen, and they're just part of a normal and natural consequence of functioning markets. If you had a expansion all the time, then there would just be built up excess, and it wouldn't be good from the free market standpoint. So it's a necessary natural part of markets. doesn't make them pleasant or anything. And we talked about it previously that we look back at history for various time periods that stocks actually do good during those periods on average. If we look at it through a bigger time frame and from the standpoint of what we expect returns will be prospectively, internally, we look at a couple of different sources, specifically like the largest asset managers, custodians out there, what they're economists come up with from a expected return standpoint. And I found it interesting looking at what Vanguard and BlackRock, two of the largest asset managers in the world, think returns are going to be prospectively. Now, these assumptions, they've come out with them every year. They deviate. Obviously, what happens in, in the future will deviate from what they project. And they've been wrong in a significant way, but it at least gives us a basis for assumption. But what I found was very interesting in terms of the Vanguard prospective returns, they're prospecting over 10 years that U.S. equities, their return projection is anywhere between 2.3 and 4.3%. They think value is going to do better than growth. They think U.S. value is going to return anywhere between 3.1 and 5.1%. And they think that U.S. growth, the annual negative annual return, they think it's going to be anywhere between negative 0.9% and 1.1%. What do you think about what their pro forma is? And then we'll, we'll talk about BlackRock's. 
What do they have for international? They have international global U.S. developed markets unhedged at anywhere between 5.3% and 7.3% as their return. Global XUS. Global XUS. Yeah. Uh, What do you say about that? I mean, uh, hopefully they're wrong. So a lot of these major shops have been promoting international stocks versus U.S. stocks for a long time and have been wrong. I think with growth, they're just expecting a reversion to a long-term average. And basically what they're saying is that would be a repeat of you know, 2000 to 2010 for growth. And NASDAQ dropped in 2001 to 2003, like 80% mm-hmm. before recovering and then dropping again in 2008, 9, and 10. So I would say that I hope that that's incorrect, but then again, have a diversified portfolio. Don't own just stocks too. I mean, there's other asset classes that we can talk about and jump into BlackRock. And then the other component to this, I love the thought process on international. And you and I were talking about this earlier. We had a client that was looking at a piece of property on the West Coast in California as like a vacation home and wanted us to do some research for them. And California real estate in this, just the U.S. in general is just out of control. So I, I got a little bit sidetracked and I was looking at this a similar type property in like you know, France or Spain or Italy, where you get that like California coast view, you know, what are things selling for over there? And it's insane. It is insane how what appears to be like some of these amazing cities in Italy, like like Positano, right outside of Barcelona in Spain, sort of that French Riviera area where I was looking in Tuscany. I was just, I, I went down a rabbit hole. The amount of what appears to be value that you get in Europe, specifically on real estate, compared to what the comparable property in the U.S., it's unbelievable. And a lot of that is due to what has historically been a difference in the euro versus U.S. dollar of somewhere in the neighborhood of like a euro equals a dollar twenty or dollar twenty-five. Now they're close to parity. So one euro is like a one equals a dollar five. So there's been that change in currency. But I also think just a major recession since 2008 that Europe really hasn't recovered from has made this huge gap in values that you get for real estate. Now, this is pure speculation. I haven't done really any research on this other than looking at properties online. But I find that so interesting. And I guess you can make that same point where you're taking a look at just companies specifically, if you're looking at a company that does business in Italy or France or Spain versus one that does business in the US, and they're essentially the same company, but domiciled in two different areas of the world. Obviously, there's geopolitical risk more so in Europe with a conflict war on the European continent right now, and then you know, energy dependency and things like that. But I just want to point out that I think if you're in the market for a second home and you're looking in this in the US for that, just if you have the ability to at least travel to Europe, you might want to look at property values over there because it's insane. Some of the, these houses that look like they're 10 times better than a California house for 50% of the cost. Right. I think it's so fascinating. And this is from somebody who's really fond of California, but someone who's also been to Positano. And the place that you showed me specifically was, and you gave me a comparison of the place in California, was about 100 times better, better view, better place. You're also in one of the, there's not many places that are better than Positano in the world that I've been to. So I think it's really an interesting observation. And the dollar is really strong right now. And so if you're right. If somebody that is in the market, that would be a cool sort of an interesting sort of proposition to be able to make that sort of exchange instead of 
looking for California real estate to look for the French coast, the you know southern French coast, French Riviera, or the Spanish Riviera, or, or southern Italy, or, or another place like that. I'll also say that it's the likelihood of a European recession compared to a U.S. recession just because of what's going on on the European continent right now is high. And so that could be a situation in which there's buying opportunities in all types of asset classes, whether it's equities or just general businesses or real estate and in that area. And the lifestyle over there is so much better too. I mean, you go grab lunch and then it's just far. So that's the only thing. The drawback of Positano is that it's touristy. So you're not, you know, you don't get that sort of like town vibe because there's always people coming in and out. But it's nice to be able to like go buy vegetables and meat and fish from the vendor and your wine and enjoy life on the coast in Italy. So then you don't get that if you live in like a California city that you buy a place, that's a small place with maybe a peak view for the same price. I mean, I think if you look at, you know, I think we're the place that we were asked to look at was in that five or six million dollar range. And in La Jolla, for example, which is like the best part of San Diego, that's like a peak view, you know, where you're seeing, we're looking in between two roof lines at the, at the ocean. And in Positano, it was like, a you know, this almost like a 300 degree view of the ocean with fruit trees and everything. So it's pretty interesting to see that dynamic play out. But I, I'll tell you what, if I was in a position to do that, I think I would opt for uh, Positano. Yeah, I'm with you. So let's digress on this and look at what BlackRock thinks. And I want to shift to other asset classes as well, because another thing I was talking about earlier, and I had a call with a client, and I think we should focus on this as well, as it relates to fixed income. When we were talking back in January, and we were talking about valuations in markets, and one of the things we were talking about was more so a concern with where interest rates were and achieving rate of return targets with having a balanced portfolio, because you know, your bond yields were one to two percent on on uh, you know investment grade corporates. Now, bond yields on investment grade corporates for the same duration or in the we'll call it three to four percent range, interest rates have moved so much that seems like a major negative. Uh, but when you're looking at long term capital market assumptions, as these big banks put out or biggest research shops put out, uh, that's something that you should view as an investor, as a positive, I don't have to take as much risk now in my portfolio to achieve the same level of return target as I had previously, because I can get, instead of getting 1% on 40% of my portfolio in fixed income, now I can get three, maybe three and a half. Uh, and that's a big difference uh, for for long-term rates of return. So I want to I want to make that sort of point as a silver lining here, that rising interest rates as savers and long-term investors and people that are planning for retirement, uh, you, you want that versus a 1% rate. Unless you own a bunch of long-dated bonds. That's right. Well, <laughs> yeah, unless you were buying, unless you were locking in rates at 1%. Right, exactly. But if you have a, like, if you have a, balance, a diversified fixed income portfolio that's like you've got money come due, then you buy, lock in the higher rates. And the whole presumption is that rates go back to sort of more normalized, you know, when inflation sort of normalizes that's the that's the assumption who's who knows if and when that's going to happen but i think it's a reasonable assumption then you've got bonds that are paying higher rate than inflation you should be looking at that with a sort of glass half full mentality so as it relates to black rocks their prognostications on other asset classes they also think that us equities they think they don't they're not quite as pessimistic as vanguard but for example they think this sort of range of returns will vary anywhere between 
the lowest quartile they provide is two and a half percent and the upper quartile is 11.2 percent so they think it's going to be probably around 6.7 percent as a prospective annual rate of return for the next 10 years they likewise think that international is going to do better than the us and so there's some sort of agreement between vanguard and blackrock in that regards they specifically think the upper quartile on european equities for example is 13.6% and the lower quartile is 6.2% with a central expected return on European equities of 9.8%. So I think that's the analogy that you're talking about in terms of real estate applied to stocks. You know, that if they're right, if Vanguard's right and BlackRock's right, then you would expect that there's more value in the sort of crown jewels of European real estate and, and likewise in European equities. They provide a really wide range. They have no idea on Chinese stocks because China is like a dictatorship. It could be a situation where it's a zero because they do something like invade Taiwan. And right, exactly. The US puts the same sanctions on that they did with Russian stocks, and those all got marked to zero. You can't even trade them. Right. On the optimistic side of the equation, they have like a you know $2 billion person population that's coming into the middle class. So it could be a huge positive rate of return. So that's the there's a tremendous amount of risk they perceive and that they have the the widest rates of return for Chinese stocks accordingly. But they think the upper quartile could be 27% annualized rate of return and a lower quartile of negative 5%. So <laughs> that's basically a dart throw. Right, exactly. So it's going to put blackjack basically. Right. How do you even put that out there? Like what is your input on that model? That gives you that range of outcomes. Right, exactly. It's got to be the Taiwan piece is in there. You know, maybe if after seeing this, you know, the Russians with their foray, maybe they'll be deterred from who knows. I mean, that when you have these sort of like, I don't know if you would, how you would define China's and maybe not be a dictatorship, but it's a kleptocracy. So yeah. I don't know what, there's not a whole lot of rational decision making sometimes in these sort of governments and they're, they're thinking about it, thinking things through from a different cultural standpoint and their worldview, et cetera. So who knows what they're going to do, but maybe that that's a positive outcome from all of this. But in terms of other asset classes, they provide a, a really interesting dichotomy. And they they think in, in particular, the highest average rate of return, they, like, they really like private equity, US private equity from a buyout standpoint. And they also like direct lending, which we have some stake in for our clients, for certain clients which is just simply private equity that lends money to private companies instead of going to the corporate bond market or going to a bank. Private debt. Private debt, exactly. So yeah, it's so private shops that, that lend money to private entities typically. So it's a really interesting dichotomy that they provide. And these are just some tools that we use from the standpoint of portfolio management and making these sorts of allocation decisions. And also we use them from the standpoint of planning assumptions for our clients that may need to you know, retire or for trying to achieve long-term objectives for one reason or another. Yep, I think we should close it on that. And as a follow-up, if anybody's hearing this and ends up buying a nice piece of real estate in Europe, please invite us and we'd be happy to join. Right, <laughs> definitely. Okay, thanks guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office and produced by Reverb. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.